Well, brothers and sisters, it's our joy to sit and listen to God's Word. And so would you take your Bible and would you open up your Bible and go to Joshua chapter 6. At the beginning of this year, we started a new series on the book of Joshua, and we're just working our way through the story. And so in chapter 1, we heard the Lord's call to Joshua to be strong and courageous. In chapter 2, we saw the faith of Rahab as she entrusted herself to the God of Israel. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw the Lord at work as he dried up the waters of the Jordan and Israel crossed over. Last week, we saw the theme of fellowship and This week, we get to read about the fall of Jericho, and so we're going to read the whole of chapter 6. So we're going to start reading in chapter 6, verse 1. So hear the word of our God. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in, and the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually, and the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner of seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction." Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. 
They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord." But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the lands. Oh, Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Do good to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start with this. Ignorance kills worship. Ignorance kills worship. For example, if you do not know who you worship... Your worship then is ineffective, unfruitful, and worthless. It doesn't matter how zealous you are. It doesn't matter how engaged your emotions are in worship. If you do not know who you worship, your worship then is a colossal waste. And one just thinks of the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that scene? Mount Carmel? Here are the prophets of Baal and they cry out with loud voices. They limp around their altar doing this ritual. They they cut themselves with lances and swords and as a result, blood is flowing all over their bodies and onto the ground. They do all of this, but nothing happens. Their cries go unheard. Their prayers are unanswered. And we can say this, they worship ignorantly and therefore their worship was a waste. But as we think about it, we have been delivered by God's grace from this sort of ignorance. We worship the one true God. We worship the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. We worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, our redeemer and our friend. We worship the Holy Spirit, the the giver of life. And we worship the one God truly. We worship him truly. We worship the one true God truly. We worship the Father in the Son through the Spirit. We worship the the Father cleansed by the blood of the Son of God, carried forward by the Holy Spirit. But still, this sentence applies. Ignorance kills worship. Worship goes wrong when you worship what you do not know. But worship can go wrong in yet another way. Worship can go wrong when you do not know what you are doing when you worship. 
Worship can go wrong when you are ignorant of worship's scheme and design and purpose. Just think about today. You've come here today, I presume, to worship. You've heard a call to worship. That's how we started out the service, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. You have sung songs of worship. You've lifted up your heart to God in worship. You've called upon the name of our God in worship, in prayer, asking him to bring his blessings to bear upon us as a people. We have listened to the word of God, and now we're in the process of listening to the word of God preached. And a good question, I think appropriate question to ask in the midst of all of this is, well, what are we doing when we worship? Now, ignorance at this point is particularly problematic. When we do not know what we are doing in worship, there's a stream of bad consequences that flow out of that ignorance. When we do not know what we are doing when we worship, we become aimless in our worship. We meander about going here and there. We start to experiment in our worship, trying this new thing and that new thing. When we do not know what we are doing in worship, we lose the feeling of urgency in our souls for the cause of worship. All of a sudden, it becomes quite easy to to see worship as something interchangeable in one schedule. It goes like this. Worship or picking up an extra shift to make some extra money. Worship or sticking around the house so that I might get some extra work done that I need to get done that hasn't been done in a while. Worship or I can head out to the ice rink. Worship or I can spend some time alone out in the bush by myself. And what happens is all of these things are put on the same plane and they're given equal value, equal weight in the soul. Furthermore, when we do not know what we are doing in worship, We can't see the value and the wonder of worship. All you can see are four walls and a ceiling. All you can see are a handful of volunteers on a stage and and some people gathered around you. All you can hear are some songs sung and some words spoken. And in the midst of all of this, nothing seems valuable. Nothing seems wonderful or spectacular. And so then we ask, well, what are we doing when we worship God? What are we doing this morning gathered together as a people? Well, Joshua chapter six gives us an answer, I think. This chapter reveals one of worship's most significant purposes, one of worship's most significant designs. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna work through Joshua chapter six so that we might see this design. Now, we know the story of Joshua chapter 6 well. For most of us, we hardly have to look at our Bibles, and we could just tell the story to one another this morning. Well, we know the story. Israel marches around the city of Jericho. They do that once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, they do it seven times. And then the, the trumpets are blown, and the men of war give their battle cry, and the wall of the city falls down, and they take the city. Rahab is saved, and Israel marches on in victory. We know the story well. But hear this. If, if we just take our time, and if we work through this well-known story with care, 
we will see something in Joshua chapter 6 that we need to see in worship. So towards that end and towards that hope, I'm going to tell you the story again, and I'm going to do it by pointing out to you six different features in this story. So it's going to be a selective telling of this story. And after I work through these six features of the story with you, I'm going to try to gather them together, making a a coherent picture of them, and bringing all of this to bear on the matter of, of worship. And I think we'll see something. So let's start working through the story. And I'll point out to you the first feature of this story. It is God's word of promise. And so the story starts out with a problem. We see it in verse 1. The text says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And so at the beginning of this story, we see that there is this fortified city blocking up Israel's path into the land of Israel, into this land that God has promised them. And this reminds us of another problem that we have already encountered in the book of Joshua. What problem does that remind us of? Well, it reminds us of the Jordan River. As the story began, what was separating Israel from the land of promise? Well, it was this overflowing River, Joshua chapter 3, verse 15. Now the Jordan River overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. And so standing before Israel is this problem, and I think the text wants us to see this city just like the floodwaters of the Jordan. This city, these fortified walls, these shut-up gates will not be overcome unless the Lord does something for Israel. And so what happens in our text? We see the problem in verse 1, and immediately the Lord counters this problem with the word of his promise. Look at verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Just take note of those words that the Lord gives to Joshua. The Lord doesn't come to Joshua, and he doesn't say, I might give you Jericho. He doesn't say, there is a good chance I will give to you Jericho. He doesn't even say, I will give to you Jericho. Take note the grammar of the Lord's promise. He says, see, I have given you Jericho into your hand. I have given it to you. What is the Lord saying? He's saying, by my promise, this city already belongs to you. It's yours. And so as readers, we're we're stunned And we ask the follow-up question, how? How is this going to take place? And so this brings us to the second feature of the story, and that's the Lord's battle plan. Now, what we find in Joshua chapter 6 doesn't resemble much of a battle plan. If we're honest, it looks like a strange sort of parade. And so the Lord commands Joshua that Israel is to march around the city And to do this once a day for six days, verse 3. And the Lord desires that this march would be done in a very particular sort of way. And so at the center of this marching procession was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so we've got the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which, which is the symbol, the very symbol of God's presence with Israel. And the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by Levitical priests. And walking directly in front of the Ark are, are seven priests 
who are to blow seven ram's horns. And a side note, the sound of these ram's horns would not have been a melodious sound. They weren't blowing a tune. They were cries, piercing noises. And then finally, a guard of men were to walk in front of the ark and the priests, and another guard of men were to walk behind the ark and the priests. And so you can just picture that in your mind. You can just draw up a mental picture. It's like a big sandwich, a marching sandwich going around Jericho. On the outside, in front and in back, you have the army of Israel. So men in front, men in back. And their job is to simply just march around the city, nothing more, nothing less. And then at the center of the processional, we have the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And right in front of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, we have seven priests with seven ram's horns. Just picture that in your mind. What do we see? When we consider it, we don't see so much a battle formation. Rather, this looks like a a liturgical procession. Looks like a worship procession. And as we think about it, this might be the strangest battle plan ever devised in the history of man. Now, we need to take note of the third feature of the story, and that is the number of days that the Lord uses. And so numbers are important in the story of Joshua chapter 6. There are seven priests who blow seven horns and Israel's to circle the city seven times on the seventh day. And it's like the author of the story is trying to get our attention with these numbers. So in verse 3, we hear this. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once, thus you shall do for six days. And then in the next verse, verse 4, we hear this. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And we know once all of this marching is done, the wall of the city is going to fall flat and Israel will get the city. So what are we to make of these numbers? We're getting all of these sevens and this work that Israel is to do is laid out on a seven-day format. Well, this pattern of numbers should remind us of the creation account. Just think about it. On days one through six, what does God do? He he makes all things, dry land, birds, beasts, fish, plants, humans. Then on the seventh day, God rests. So in the creation count, there's a set of six days followed by a seventh. And from this pattern, we get the law of God. Just as God worked on six days and then rested on the seventh, so too man. Man is to work on six days, this set of six, and then to rest on the seventh. And I think what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to map out the creation week onto Joshua chapter 6. And so in both stories, we see a set of six days followed by a seventh. And when we do this, what do we begin to see? Well, we see this. On the seventh day, on the day of rest, Israel walks around the city seven times. And then what happens? The Lord works. He smashes the walls. He levels the walls to the ground. And what does Israel do? What does Israel accomplish on the seventh day, this day of rest? Well, we answer, well, really nothing that productive at all. Really nothing that amazing. They walk around the city seven times. They blow some horns. They give a great shout. And then God does everything. What we see is God does everything on the holy day of the Sabbath when humanity is called to rest and trust in their God. 
Now we need to keep moving in this story. We need to think more about this shout that Israel is to give on the seventh day after circling the city seven times. And this is the fourth feature of the story. And so we see Israel is to do their walking for the first six days in a very certain manner. They were to be silent. And so the horns are blowing on the first six days, directing Israel and the men of war in their, their marching formations. But Israel, the army, is to be silent. Verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. And so the story has played out before us in Joshua chapter 6. The six days are completed and the seventh day comes. And on the seventh day, Israel circles around the city seven times. And then finally, we've been waiting for this all chapter, Joshua gives the command, verse 16. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And this shout is central to the story of Joshua chapter 6. As readers, we have to wait six days to hear this shout. We're waiting for it. We want to hear it as readers. Now, this word shout is a particularly interesting word. It's used throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used in the context of battle. For example, it's used in the book of 1 Samuel. After David kills Goliath, the men of Israel are filled with courage and they start to chase the Philistines. And what do they do in their chase? They use this word, they, they shout. So you can just picture that in your mind. You've got the men of Israel charging into the battle and they're yelling at the top of their lungs, filled with adrenaline. But this word is also used in other contexts in the Old Testament. It is also used in liturgical contexts. It's a word that is often used to describe how Israel worships God. So it's used in Psalm 66 verse 1. Shout out praise to God all the earth. Or Psalm 81 verse 1. Shout for joy to God our source of strength. Shout out to the God of Jacob. Or Psalm 95, verses 1 through 2. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout out praises to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout out to him with songs of praises. So here in this story, in Joshua chapter 6, the climactic point is this shout. It is both a battle cry and it is at the very same time this liturgical cry of worship. Describing how the people of God sing their songs to the Lord. We keep moving. We can look at the fifth feature of this story, and that's obedience. So there's lots of excitement in Joshua chapter 6, and we can't miss, in the midst of all of this excitement, the matter of obedience. And so Joshua and Israel, they must both do what the Lord tells them to do. And so important is the matter of obedience in this story that right in the middle of the climax of the story, so the walls have been circled seven times, the men of Israel are ready to yell, Joshua is giving them instructions to yell, but before they yell, Joshua just puts the whole story on pause and essentially he says, let me give you a few more commands of instruction. Let me just talk to you a little bit more before we're going to hear this actual shout. So look at verses 18 and 19. In the middle of the climax of the story, Joshua starts to preach a little sermon with some application points. 
He says, but you keep yourselves from things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. What is the story doing to us here? You have to love how this story is told. It won't let us, at this climactic point of the story, ignore the matter of obedience. Israel must do the word of the Lord. Success is bound up with this one simple matter, hearing and obeying God's word. And this finally brings us to the sixth feature of the story, the action. The action. So if you're an action junkie, if you like action movies, chapter six disappoints you. Really, the story disappoints you. Just think about the story and what we've read. We've read the whole story together, and in the story, we get verse upon verse of instruction. We get the Lord's instructions first to Joshua, and then Joshua turns around and he gives the the same instructions to Israel. And then we get an account of the six days and the seventh days. What does Israel do? They just follow the instructions of Joshua through the Lord. And then we get to the climax of the story, and then we get more instructions. And then finally, after all of these instructions, we get action. But catch this, we only get two verses of action in the whole story. Verse 20, verse 21. So the people shouted, And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. What is this story doing? Well, the story minimizes its focus on the action. Just by word count, the text is telling us something. The text is revealing to us the importance of the story. It isn't the action. It's everything that comes before the action. The action is just a a concluding remark on all that the Lord has already said. So that's helpful. So here we have the story. I set before you six features of the story. This is a selected reading of the story, but we've got all these pieces in front of us. We've got the promise, we've got the battle plan, we've got the number of days, we've got the shout, we've got the necessity of obedience, and finally, we've got the action. So what are we supposed to make, how are we supposed to make sense of this story? What are we supposed to see here as we put together these pieces? Well, as we look at the story, as we listen to the story, and then as we start to gather up these different pieces, these different features, and as we put them into a coherent whole, what we see at the beginning is gospel truth in this story. What are we supposed to see here? We're supposed to see this. God battles for his people. God knocks down the city walls. God gives his, his people the victory. And what does Israel do? They gladly receive it. It's God's gift to them. And what this story does is it lifts up God's work in front of our eyes. And Joshua chapter 6 is precious to us as Christians because in this story, we see the contours of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, Jesus' life, his substitutionary death for sinners, his victorious resurrection from the dead, preaches to us all of the same truths. 
What do we see in the gospel of Jesus? We see that God battles for his people. In the gospel, God has defeated Satan, overthrown the power of sin, and destroyed death. In the gospel, God battles for his people. And what do the people of God do in the gospel? They gladly receive the victory that God gives to them. They take it. So what does Joshua chapter 6 do? It reveals a big and powerful God. And it's the same big and powerful God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our delight, it is our joy as God's people to entrust ourselves to the God of Joshua chapter 6. For we love this God and what this God does for his people. Now I said that's the start of what we see in Joshua chapter 6. I think there's more here. And if we keep looking, I think this text begins to inform us about worship And so in Joshua chapter 6, the people of God are not simply passive in this story. They are are doing something. The Lord has called them to do a specific work. And what are they doing? Well, we can give a few negatives. They aren't building siege works. They aren't building up a giant ramp of earth so that they can just walk into the city. They aren't uh, taking ladders and scaling the walls of the city. They don't have a large tree and they're not using it as a battering ram to knock down the walls. Rather, they're doing something completely different. Israel is engaged in worship. Just think about it. What are they doing? They are marching in a liturgical formation around the city, the men of war. And then in the middle of this this sandwich of men of war, you've got the, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with priests blowing horns. And these people, they shout a liturgical shout, a battle cry, but also a battle cry that is a cry of worship that Israel uses to sing to their God. And they make this liturgical shout and they do this liturgical march and where all the action is on the seventh day, a liturgical day. And they do all of this to the most important liturgical matter of all, the word of God revealed in promise as the story starts and in command. So what do we see here? Well, we see this. Israel's worship is their warfare. Israel's worship is their warfare. As they worship, what does God do? He fights and he wins the battle. As they lift up their cry of worship, God comes and he knocks down the wall of Jericho and he gives them the victory. And if we're looking here, Joshua chapter 6 gives us a precious gift clarity. What is this chapter doing? It's dispelling, it's removing ignorance. Here in Joshua chapter 6, we see the design, the scheme, the purpose of worship. When we worship, what are we doing? We are making war. Or to put it like this, worship is the church's principal offensive weapon of war. Just ponder this for a moment as we try to connect ourselves with this story. Our situation is not very different than Israel's situation. Think about Israel's situation in the book of Joshua. Israel has enemies abroad. So there's these giants in the land. They're intimidating. There's walled cities, fortified cities in the land, Jericho. There's armies, better equipped, better armed in the land. And as we think about it, we have enemies abroad as well. We face Satan and his legion of wicked angels. We face dark times. We are situated in a Western culture that has lost its way. 
We're situated in a culture that celebrates all manners of evil. And because of that, we are situated in a culture that loves death. Our culture loves death, celebrates death, abortion, assisted suicide, the mutilation of bodies. We are in a dark place at a dark time. But as we think about Israel's situation, this isn't all that we see. Israel also had enemies within their own ranks. And in the coming chapters and in the coming weeks, we're going to learn about Israel's internal enemies. And as we think about it, we have internal enemies too. We have enemies within our own ranks. When we look within, we find all manner of corruption and pollution. The poison of indwelling sin courses through our veins. Day after day after day, there's greed and impatience and anger and bitterness and cowardice and faithlessness. And all of these things are working to draw us away from our God. And so here's the question. Well, what are we to do? Israel has enemies abroad, enemies within. We have enemies abroad. We have enemies within. What are we to do? Well, what does Israel do in chapter 6? They worship their God. What are we to do? We are to worship our God. Let me ask you, do you want to see the darkness push back among the nations? Do you want to abolish this regime of death in our Western culture? Do you want to kill sin in your own life? Do you want to see the end of greed and anger and lust and bitterness in your own heart? Do you want to untie these, these knots in your marriage these knots in our marriage that get us so tied up, we can't seem to move past them. You want to move past blockades in your family? I think you do. Then hear this, you must worship. Now, as you think about it, this might seem strange. Perhaps this might seem unwise. Surely many of the Israelites thought that. Surely many within Jericho, as they were watching all of this, thought that. Surely thoughts were going like this. How is marching day after day. How is giving a yell and blowing some trumpets, how is that going to do any good for us? Or we can translate this into our own context. Doubts come to us. We can say, well, how is gathering with God's people on Sunday? How is singing praises to God? Singing some songs together. How is praying together? How is sitting down and listening to a sermon going to do any good for my life? How is it going to make a difference in this world? Well, here we must remember Joshua chapter 6. Let the truth wash over you. When Israel worshipped, what happened? God knocked down the wall of Jericho and he gave his people the victory. And the same sort of thing happens today. This is how God works still in this moment. Think about it like this. When we worship, what are we doing We are taking up the armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the gospel of peace. And when we worship with those things, we battle against Ephesians 6.12, rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. When we worship, we have success. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. When we worship, we destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of our God. When we worship, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. 
when we gather as a people, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, when we worship, what are we doing? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, we are making known the manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We are triumphing over them in the Son of God who died for sinners. Think about it. When we worship, what is God doing? When we worship, God raises spiritually dead men and women to new life in Jesus. When we worship, God opens the eyes of blind men and frees men and women from the snares of the evil one. When we worship, proclaiming the word of our God, what does God do? He shines forth the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ and all of God's people are transformed from one degree of glory unto another. When we worship, what does God do? He subdues our sins and he tramples over our temptations. When we worship, God comes to us and he strengthens the weak. He comforts the grieving. He gives faithfulness to those who are teetering and wobbling. When we worship, God restores marriages and binds together families. When we worship, our God is at work giving victory to his people. When we worship, God is doing many mighty things, more things than we can name or even understand. So hear this. Christian, the most important thing you can do for the nations, you look at the nations, all of them, the most important thing you can do for your own country, the most important thing you can do for your church the most important thing you can do for your marriage and your children and your family members is this. Worship God Lord's Day by Lord's Day with all the people of God. For when we worship, God works. Doesn't that jolt you awake? Isn't that glorious? When we know the purpose, the scheme, the design of worship, we are then filled with fresh urgency and purpose. Just think about it. We go to, to church, and we need to be telling ourselves this. When we go to church, when we worship, we should be saying this. I'm going to make war today. I'm going to make war against Satan, against my flesh, against ignorance and darkness. When we know that the purpose and the scheme and design of worship, we are awakened to the value and the significance of worship. When you see the design of worship, you, you're, you feel compelled in your soul to start saying things like this. I won't forsake this assembly for anything. I won't forsake the assembly for riches or for leisure or for relaxation or for sports or for family or for anything at all. Because this is too precious. This is too strategically important for my life to miss. And when we are awakened to the wonder of worship, when you see the design of worship, you start to say things. And it might sound ridiculous to others, but it's true. You start to say things like, today, today I'm convinced I will see God knock my enemies to the ground. Today, I am convinced that God will do good to my soul. He will transform me from one degree of glory to another. He will move me forward on this path of sanctification. I will see sin dead at my feet. Today, God will do something good for my family and for my children. Today, something God will, today, God will do something good for my, my fellow church members, perhaps for the whole world today. You 
start to say things like this. Today, God will work for me. And that's what Joshua chapter 6 is all about. It's showing us worship and the victory of God and connecting together worship and the victory of God. And what this chapter should do is it should bring conviction to our hearts and encouragement. Brother, sister, in Jesus, I hope you feel conviction. I hope you feel conviction about the importance of worship, the priority of worship in your life. You should, because it's true. And I hope you feel encouraged this morning, because when we worship, our God works. And when we come to worship, we need to strap on faith, believing that our God will work for us. And so I pray that you will feel both conviction and encouragement, and let's pray towards that end. Father, we are your people. And we confess that we're often confused. We often live in the darkness, but we're thankful for your word and the light and clarity it brings to our lives. Father, we ask now in light of Joshua chapter 6 that you would freshly convict our hearts about the priority and importance of worship for our lives. Would we be a people who worship Even more, would you bring encouragement to our hearts? Give us faith that we might might believe that as we worship week by week, you will do us good. You will fight for us and you will win battles that we could never win. And so we pray, convict our hearts and also encourage our hearts. We need this.